So one of the questions I really wanted to ask Michael that I didn't get a chance to. Who, was, who are you, John? Oh, Our listeners don't even know who you are. This is John Sargent. Okay, fine. And Mark's not even here. He's already left. I'm here. Okay, fine. So one of the questions I had for Michael that I didn't get a chance to ask was knowing that he works on projects all day that are confidential and he can't speak about them, what in the world does he talk about at dinner when his family says, what do you work on? Today? How was your day, honey? How was your day, honey? What did you work on? What did you work on? <laughs> and all you can respond with is, good. And then you can't say anything. <laughs> Welcome to the Behind the Bars podcast, where we discuss all things motorcycles, memories, and mayhem. Oh, this is awesome. Sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Let's get this thing started. Here's John and Mark. On the line with us today is Michael Spieth from Harley-Davidson Motor Company. Uh, Michael is actually the go-to market manager, which I don't even know what the hell that is, but I'm sure he's going to tell us. Welcome, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for, for having me. Welcome, Michael. So, Hello, Michael. John Sargent is joining us today, and John is uh, is our sales manager here. And So John wanted to jump on board because he was so excited about the recent unveiling of the uh, CVO uh, Rogue Glide. Yes. Right? Okay. So, uh, Michael, I I told you right before we started that uh, I was uh, this is the most excited I've been in a little while interviewing someone uh, for a lot of different reasons. But you've done just to kind of get us up to speed on before we talk about go to market manager. You've done all kinds of things. You've been a young adult customer segment lead for North America, global outreach customer uh, segment manager a product manager uh, in motorcycle product planning, and now the go-to market manager. Uh, you've had a lot of different roles at the motor company. Uh, how long have you been with the motor company? And just tell us, how did, how did you get to be go-to market manager, and what the heck is that? Sure, sure. So I've been with Harley-Davidson for just under 10 years. Uh, born in Boulder, Colorado, but grew up in Wisconsin, and the brand's always been kind of near and dear to me, so it's always been a place I've, I've had a uh, tremendous amount of, of passion for and a, and a place I always aspired to, to um, you know, work, uh, work for. Um, and to your point, I've been, been around the organization. I think one of the blessings of working here at Harley-Davidson is you do get a lot of different experience if that's the path you choose. And I've never wanted to be necessarily an expert in any one thing, but try to be a jack of all trades and really have a holistic view of, of the organization and, and, and the business. And I think that's provided me some great opportunities um, that have led to you know multiple different um, careers here at Harley, uh, but ultimately to the one I'm currently in, which is a, a go-to-market manager, and um, it's a, a newer role I think for for organizations who uh, larger organizations that have a lot of different functional aspects. And what I mean by that is you know we have uh, sales, we have marketing, we have uh, dealer services or dealer readiness, we have technical training quality and warranty. We have a whole uh, host of people that are involved in the product development piece, everything from supply base to engineering and styling. Um, and our job as the, the go-to-market team is to take all those things and, and the products or solutions that we bring forward and make sure that we are putting them out there into the public uh, uh, in the most relevant and, and effective means possible. Um, and that's become increasingly more important as you know the, the organization becomes more and more global. So go-to market manager, that, that you've got the – do you work at the Willie G Product Development Center? 
I don't. I actually spend most of my time here at Juno Avenue, uh, our corporate headquarters, but I do um, spend a, a, a fair share of time at the PDC because a lot of what we do, I look at our role as kind of the bridge between um, the PDC, as we refer to it, a product development center, and, and Juno Avenue, taking all the hard work that, that those teams over there are doing in developing product and and pulling that forward into the, the Juno Avenue space, which is where most of the work takes place to, to get it from product conception into the dealerships and into the hands of our, our consumers. So uh, tell me, walk me through, and I know I know John and Mark are both uh, chomping at the bit to jump in here with their questions. They wrote up a bunch, but um, I'm just intrigued by this. So you, the recent Roguelide CVO that just, just barely came out uh, yesterday, right? Or the day before when this airs. Um, what, what, what came what out go- on Monday. It came out on Monday. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. So w- tell me what, what goes into unveiling this because from our perspective you know we just sort of think you just push a button and all this stuff comes out so what goes into the planning how how many how long out do you have to start planning for all this work yeah it it, it depends and i don't want to bore anyone with with process which there's plenty of um it's a, it was astonishing and eye-opening to me coming into a manufacturing company and um just how much effort it actually takes to to you know make a product and then successfully get it into the the marketplace and conceptually um, you know it depends the first answer to your question is uh, very variable some products can take you know a couple months others can take multiple years um, to develop from the ground up but it all starts with customer insights and understanding what our customers are looking for identifying where there are opportunities and and where those opportunities exist. And, and it's, we lead with the consumer in mind, but you get into things like geography and economics and all those other fun things that, that weigh into people's purchase decisions. Um, and we're looking for new ways to appeal to consumers in the, in the two-wheeled space. So uh, safety is just an, an example. Um, safety has uh, is become more and more top of mind for, for consumers. Um, and the, the risks that are involved in, in or perceived risks that are involved in motorcycling and, and that being a, a barrier for some folks. And so we're looking for ways to overcome some of those things um, as an example. That gets then put into this uh, process, which I won't, I won't bore you all with, but it goes through a tremendous amount of rigor to confirm that these opportunities are actually real and not just things that we thought up one night uh, over a glass of whiskey at a bar with a napkin. To substantiate those 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 things, um, and there's a whole host of folks, consumer insights and analytics, uh, our engineering group, styling group, who starts to put pen to paper and map out what said motorcycle in this case would would look like. Um, there are sales functions as well as uh, more analytics people to determine the size of those opportunities. So how many people would actually um, be interested in a, a road glide CVO, for example. Uh, and then, and then it, it works its way after the product is, is conceived and developed and conceptually signed off on, meaning we have 2D renderings, um, sometimes 3D mock-ups, sometimes clay moldings where, where our styling group is legitimately carving clay to get to bodywork and things of that nature. Uh, then it goes through a tremendous amount of engineering or science rigor uh, to make sure that these things are going to live up to the Harley-Davidson name and durability. Um, testing, uh, functional performance testing, um, you know, a whole host of things with regards to 
homologation, as we refer to it, which or certification, which is you know things like regulatory and EPA restrictions, and these are the things that I don't think anyone's fascinated by because they're they're kind of the, the doldrums of the business. But it's where there's a tremendous amount of effort that I think a lot of people don't think about. But what helps us, um, you know, uh, shine above uh, competition. So the CVO Road Glide, what what story would you say that ties in with all of this that that we that we'll never we would never know unless you came out and told us? Oh man, um, CVO Road Glide. So a couple of just little classic points there. I actually spoke with with uh, someone who I have a tremendous amount of respect for as as late as this morning, um, Paulie, who's who's one of our leads for Custom Paint, which obviously plays a heavy role in in the CVO recipe. Um, CVO being kind of our premium line of, of products, um, he and I were having a great conversation uh, this morning about how much rigor and effort he puts into you know paint selection for any of our motorcycles, but particularly CVO, which is kind of the, the creme de la creme, if you will. Um, and it's interesting, like little nuances uh, that go into the science behind the paint and the types of paint we use and the, and the durability of a CVO paint or of a Harley-Davidson paint over a lot of other uh, companies out there and really how Harley's kind of put on a pedestal with regards to and followed in a lot of cases by the automotive industry um, uh, as well as other other motorcycle manufacturers we kind of set the bar for what good quality paint is uh, this guy lives breathes and eats this stuff every day and it was a, a fascinating discussion um, that came out of it but one of the things that that people really don't think about is we actually use an industrial acrylic clear coat uh, which makes the paint substantially more durable than a lot of the, the uh, clear coats that are out on the market today. And I can't speak to the scientific you know, uh, chromosomes or things like that that go into the paint process. But the other piece that I thought was really fascinating that, that um, most people probably don't take into consideration is when you look at a motorcycle, uh, a Harley-Davidson CVO, for example, everything just seems to work. And people like myself take that for granted. But when you, you look in through the eyes of Paulie's and you look at all the different shapes that are on a, a, a motorcycle, it's not like a truck where it's, you know, a panel, a bunch of panels that all blend together. On a motorcycle, you have triangles and squares and circles, and their job or challenge is to really look at how do we make this thing look beautiful with all these different things going on and simultaneously hold true to one of our key components of, of the brand DNA, which is the crown jewel or the powertrain. And if you look at every Harley-Davidson, um, that's really where it's all focused. Uh, we do go out of our way to highlight the motor, not hide the motor. And part of that is uh, you know, the essence of the brand um, and the, the fact that we are a motor company. Michael, I'm, I'm curious in, in this development process, how you balance main, maintaining some of the tradition of the brand and yet have it come across as something new and progressive to me that's got to be a really tough thing to do i mean you're trying to remain uh true to the brand uh aesthetically and functionally and design wise and yet you're faced with all of these new progressive technologies and perhaps market demands how do you how do you do that and how do you negotiate it how do you give weight to each of those two considerations yeah, it's a tough balance, but I think that, and it's a great question, by the way. It's, it's, it is, it, particularly in my, my previous role in product planning, uh, one of the most challenging but fulfilling aspects of, of that job is, is trying to do just that, and that's the, the scaling of um, 
the right options and opportunities, and all done through the lens of the customer. Um, where it becomes increasingly hard for, for us as an organization, I think, is our customer base is so diverse. You know, motorcycles and motorcycle riders really have no boundaries other than some limitations to, you know, licensing requirements and age requirements. But, you know, there are people from 16 all the way up to uh, probably 100-something that are, are riding motorcycles of all ethnic back, backgrounds and um, demographics. Uh, and so what's oftentimes right for one person is exactly the opposite for the, the next. Um, so it's, it's a lot of trying to figure out how, how do we scale it or, or find out what the mainstream is, is motivated by and what are those things. And we use you know, product development tools, Kano graphs and things like that to help articulate and prioritize those opportunities. Um, but the, the thing I find the most beneficial is just getting out and, and immersing ourselves with our consumers. Um, in my customer segment rule, we used to call it sleeping in ditches. And that legitimately meant like getting out and, and rubbing elbows and, and um, shaking hands with our consumers on a daily basis. And really not, not um, just observing, but participating in, in their lives in that lifestyle. Uh, and that leads to a lot of these insights for the types of things that motivate them, the things that would make their experience better um, or overcome the things that they don't enjoy about, about motorcycling. I think there's just a tremendous amount of pressure and, and complicated stuff that goes into an iconic design and brand like Harley. I'm, I'm seeing it with Chevrolet Corvette right now. Now, you're probably familiar with the, the new model, which is going to be mid-engine, a fundamentally dramatic change from what we know a Corvette to be. And I'm curious, is, is the motor company ever... Uh, you know, in a position where they might fundamentally change the, the motorcycle design that uh, dramatically, or is that just sort of off the table? I don't know that anything is, is necessarily off the table. I can tell you we've done a lot of, we do a, a tremendous amount of research um, because there is that fine line of, of maintaining, you know, who you are and, and holding true to the, the four founders and what our brand DNA is, but also uh, moderns and modern interpretations of that. And even in the CVO space, kind of going back to that three years ago, I believe it was, when we introduced what we refer to internally as kind of the nine block. Um, and you'll notice, you know, within a CVO paint, uh, there's kind of three options, a, a, a more traditional, generally more chrome version, um, something that is kind of middle of the road, and then a stretch version of it, which allows us to push. And what we're trying to do there is appeal to a broader, broader breadth of people, um, and it allows us opportunities to give the traditionalists what they want, but also push a little bit further into some spaces to, um, to appeal to a, a more diversified audience, if you will. But it is a, it is a fine line, and there are, have been examples where we've, we've, you know, we've pushed it a little too far or, or others where we haven't pushed it far enough, and I think it's a constant, a constant balance. So, so kicking back to that um, space, this is John. I, I have a couple of questions. So I know it's a long process developing a new model. And oftentimes there's sometimes these unique stories that you can't really share at the moment, but you can share after something's released. You know, it, it takes me back to remembering hearing a story about, you know, the uh, radiator shroud on a V-rod and how, you know, it's kind of helped by, you know, an envelope holding it up to direct airflow. Are there any really unique stories that you can share about, you know, any of the recently released models or, you know, maybe a past model that you've always found as a as a cool story that sticks out in your mind as 
something that you didn't anticipate it making a difference. But then when you looking back, it was like that was an unorthodox way of getting a solution that may turned out to be kind of a big win. Yeah, it's funny, I, um, especially in my, my current role in the go-to-market function, which is a lot of you know bringing those stories to life or, or, or trying to bring those stories to life. The, the, the stories exist everywhere. Um, the interesting part is it's a, it's a bit hard to extract them because people are working on these projects, and if you're not right there in that moment, um, it's it, it hard to capture. And then they're moving on to the next products, which oftentimes are uh, you know multi-years out in front of us. But there is one that comes to mind for me, and I don't know how, how intriguing this will be. I was having a, a conversation when we were launching uh, the new Softail um, platform, um, I guess it was probably two years ago, with one of the chief engineers uh, of that team. And, and this also actually ties back to one of your questions prior about you know technology and Harley-Davidson and where do we stand in that space. And Softail is a great example of, of Harley-Davidson has always had a lot of technology baked into their their products, which I think is a, a misnomer and a, a pretty significant stereotype that we're we're we're, we're battling. Um, but part of the reason why it's it's become that is because we do such a good job with product hygiene and packaging it, and have gone out of our way historically to hide those things. So you're not seeing technology because it's 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 um, buried within the motorcycle and the core architecture of the motorcycle to hold true to some of those kind of key DNA elements that that harken way back in our history with. You know, uh, uh, um, a stiff chassis, for example, and not seeing suspension and things of that nature. Um, and the soft tail example is there is so much technology, wiring, um, uh, you know, fluids, all those types of things that go into to the development of a motorcycle buried in inside the, the soft tail uh, internals that this chief engineer is like, we, you could drop a dime or a marble uh, underneath the seat and you could ride it around for 100 miles and that marble will still be in there. That just goes to show how tightly packed um, all of that technology is within, within that motorcycle and how well it's, it's, it's contained in the right areas of the bike for weight distribution, etc. Hmm. That's very cool. So I've not actually ever formally tested that theory, by the way. I haven't <laughs> you know, thrown a marble in there and, and ridden around for, for that long. But um, based on visually how it looks when you remove the seat, I, I speculate that that is likely very true. Michael, I, we did a little research, obviously, on you. Um, you've been involved with a lot of different events, uh, in, and um, it seems like you you uh, do a lot of things with you know as far as um, mechanical work with your hands. What 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 do you ride for a motorcycle, and where do you see uh, you know some of the ideas? I mean, what are you seeing the f- the future of the road glide? Because I know you've got some theories on that. Yeah, uh, so I actually have a, a road glide in my garage currently. Um, uh, I've had a multitude of motorcycles, everything from Sportsters to uh, Dynas, um, even a few vintage, uh, not not early model vintage, but late model vintage motorcycles. Um, my stable is fairly empty right now, and I'm in the sidecar market, um, primarily because I have a young daughter who has some, some health issues that, I want her to experience a motorcycle, and unfortunately, sitting on the back isn't isn't an option for for her. So that's that's where I'm headed next for me personally. Um, and I do have some biases towards the road glide, but my theory kind of uh, this is high level, and, and this isn't necessarily endorsed or embraced by the organization at large. Um, in my motorcycle product planning days, I think we're seeing 
this evolution of the next generation of riders, um, those who are, you know, I'll call it 35 and younger, uh, many of which who grew up with their fathers uh, that were Harley-Davidson enthusiasts or passionate about, about the brand. Um, and I think my articulation of this is over time, we as kids looked up to our fathers and loved that they were on Harleys, loved that we got to ride around on our, our, our dads or our parents' Harleys, and this is just one example. Um, you know, back back then, my dad would ride around with me on the back of his bike, and here in Wisconsin, we don't have helmet laws, and so neither he nor I had a helmet on, probably. Um, and people would give give us thumbs up at every every stoplight. Today's a different day and age, and if I put my daughter on the back of my motorcycle, particularly without a helmet on, I don't know I would be getting a thumbs up. I'd probably be getting a different finger. You probably would. Um, that's that's one of the challenges that I think we as a as an industry need to overcome, um, and. And it's something we'll have to continue to, to, to deal with. But I can tell you that you know, motorcycling shapes my life, not just because I work at Harley-Davidson, because the therapeutic aspects of it make me a better individual, uh, makes me a better employee, makes me a better father, uh, makes me a better friend. Um, and people will attest to, to that that know me. Okay. Getting back to your question, though, about the road glide and kind of the evolution of it, I think us as kids always had a strong affinity for Harley, but if you think about it back then, getting into the late 90s or, or, or excuse me, late 80s, early 90s, uh, Harleys were in, in high demand and out of reach for, for us as our youth coming into, you know, driving age. Um, trying to get a Harley-Davidson, even though we really liked them, wasn't really an option because there weren't a lot to get and those that, that were around were driving a, a good demand uh, financially. But we loved two wheels and we kind of grew up on them, so we went into um, other more attainable aspects, i.e. sport bikes. At that point in time and uh, grew our affinity for all things two wheels as we got older and more mature and became more stable in our careers um, and Harley-Davidson's became more available with increased manufacturing capabilities um, we moved from sport bikes or other forms of, of two wheels into the Harley-Davidson space some went to choppers who aspired to have kind of their dad's bike essentially um, and and others found you know, spaces like the Sportster to, to come into. It was also a little bit of a, a means of, of, of slowing us down, candidly. Um, with, with maturity comes more, more responsibility and arguably a little bit more brains. Um, and I think what we found is uh, we loved that transition and loved, you know, riding Harley-Davidson. There's something about a Harley-Davidson and I, I'll never be able to define this. I don't think if I if I could put it in a jar and sell it, I would be a billionaire. But it's that just that feeling that you get from a Harley Davidson that you don't get from any other motorcycle. And I, I hate saying it because it sounds super cliche, but I think anyone who's who's ridden a motorcycle or a Harley Davidson motorcycle um, can attest to this. Unfortunately, we haven't found the secret way to to bottle it and 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 you know sell it outright as the emotional piece. Long story short. Um, we also learned some things growing up on the, those sports-style motorcycles, which is a, a keen need for performance, inverted front forks, uh, inline four acceleration, things like that. And I think that's why we're seeing a, a stronger, bigger propensity for this next generation of customers who want, um, uh, love the styling and the architecture of a Harley-Davidson, but are leaning into or also looking for, for more functionality. And again, we've had it for a long time. We haven't touted it like some of the other other brands maybe have. Um, 
and we're increasingly putting more functionality into our motorcycles and playing up the performance aspect. And that comes through in products like the Fat Bob, for example. Um, but even in all the, all the soft tails from a functionality perspective, just being more agile and higher performing motorcycles than their, their predecessors. You know, Michael, the word functionality is, segues perfectly into the next question that I had for you, and that is how do you balance uh, functionality, especially technologies, things like HD Connect and so on and so forth, uh, keeping the motorcycles progressive in that regard, but not having them become intrusive and, and maybe even uh, pulling attention away from the true you know, elements that make a Harley-Davidson a Harley-Davidson. I wonder about that, and how do you balance it? Yeah, again, you know, all of this is a bit of a balancing act because for, for one person, they really want that technology, and the next person, they ride a motorcycle to, to escape or get away from it all. Yeah. Um, and it's really trying to make sure that we have solutions in place for, for kind of, uh, I don't want to say everybody because that's not possible, but for the, for the spectrum. Um, and so you'll see in some, some instances there is more tech um, and there's more performance, and in others where we feel it's less important to the, to the primary customer for that that motorcycle, um, you'll see less. But in all motorcycles, you're going to have plenty of functional technology that will make the ride more enjoyable. And it goes back to what I said earlier about how good of a job our organization, in particular our engineering and styling folks, do with with you know hiding that stuff so it doesn't take away and it's not a distraction. And I won't criticize other manufacturers, but a lot of people go out of their way to hide the powertrain um, and, and cloak the motorcycle in, in plastic coverings and things like that to, to bury that stuff. We really find pride and part of our DNA is to showcase those things, um, and pr primarily the, the, the powertrain. And you'll hear Brad Richards and, and our styling folks refer to it as the crown jewel. That was stuff ingrained by Willie G, you know, years, years back, and how important that is to kind of the, the overarching um, brand essence, if you will. Well, that kind of, uh, I like that you said that, which which made me think when you said, you know, the Road Glide, and I know you're a Road Glide fan, and kind of the shark nose versus bat wing debate is probably going to be internal, or, you know, eternal. And I'm kind of curious, do you foresee, you know, the models as that debate continues and continues, do you foresee them becoming more comparable or do you find that there's strength in having the difference between the two fairings? Uh, I think there's strength in having the, di the difference in two fairings and, and I don't know if this is scientific. My personal take on it is, and we have this debate here internally all the time as well as, you know, listen to customers at shows and trade shows and things like that, same thing. They're, you're either a, a bat wing guy or you're a, a, a shark nose um, fixed fairing guy. And, you know, for the longest time, um, bat wing uh, was and still is our, our top selling, but there are more and more people kind of uh, moving over to the road glide. Again, my theory behind that is it's a bit more uh, youthful and a bit more sporty, and as the next generation is coming in, many of which who came in from uh, the sport bike stuff at, at, at their youth, um, they're used to a bit more of a modular type of fairing, and therefore a road glide fairing feels more or normal to them. It's also a little bit of a way to be like be like dad, but but create some distinction from dad. I think as well. Yeah. Um, you know the thing is, there are those who want just tradition and iconic, and that's what the Batwing represents. And it's an amazing motorcycle. Um, my affinity personally is for the Road Glide for some of the reasons I suggested to you guys, but also from a performance perspective, 
uh, it does have a little bit of an advantage in that you're not, you know, uh, cornering through canyon roads or, or nice country curvy roads, which is as good as it gets here in Wisconsin. Um, uh, you, you have less steering effort. Um, and from my perspective, and I'm not the Jolly Green Giant, you know, 5'9", um, I feel like the wind protection, uh, which ultimately benefits me from a wind fatigue perspective on a road glide, is, is um, more beneficial or advantageous uh, on that bike than it is on a, on a bat wing for me personally. But there's so much, you know, for that statement, there are 10 guys behind me that would say the exact opposite for, right. for a street glide. So it comes down to personal preference. And unless the masses came back to us and uh, with their vote of wallet and said, no one wants a bat wing anymore, we all want road glide bearings or vice versa, uh, we'll continue to offer offer both. Michael, I know we're um, I know you're a busy guy, and we only carved out 20 minutes, and I know we're we're pushing the envelope on this. But uh, last last question, because I know the um, the guys have a mountain of them, and it went by quick. But uh, I have a question for you. and You can only pick one. Uh, your go to market. You're working on adventure touring, street fighter, fat custom cruiser. Uh, you you have you can only go with one. Which one are you going to go with? Which one am I taking to market, or which one am I buying personally? Uh, both. <laughs> uh, man, I think that is a tough one. It is a really tough one. Um, I've grown an affinity for all three of these motorcycles. They actually all feel like my children, and each one, you know, it's like the blonde uh, brunette and and. There isn't even a redhead in there. Well, maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could uh, just briefly tell us what is the most exciting out of each. You know, what's what's sticking out to you that's the most exciting on each of those segments? Yeah, I think uh, so. You know, my head goes right to adventure touring and street fighter because they're less expected from from our organization. Um, which part of me sees why people say that and, and do that, and then there's a part of me that has worked at the PDC for multiple years, and I'm like, I don't get it. We're experts in two wheels. How we wrap it and how it how it how it uh, functions um, doesn't change. A lot of it just comes down to science and physics. And if you talk to engineers, and I'm not an engineer, but you know they can get into the technical jargon. Um, what makes a cruiser great is science, um, and that same science, not the exact same output, but the same science leads to a great adventure touring bike uh, or a, a street fighter style motorcycle. So to answer your question, I'm, I'm most excited about those two, primarily because they're, they're uh, uh, one of the things you don't know about me personally yet is I'm, I'm fairly competitive. And I love it when people tell me can't or won't or um, it's going to be hard. That's the stuff that actually motivates me. Um, and no one's saying that to us in the fat uh, custom cruiser space, but we have plenty of critics saying that in, in some of those other spaces and I can't wait to uh, be part of proving some of those folks wrong we're excited we're w- w- this this is the most exciting time since I've been involved with with Harley Davidson and uh, um, you know I, I love to describing you know orga- orchestrating the largest motorcycle launch in Harley Davidson's history you know adventure touring Street Fighter and fat custom cruiser I mean it really is exciting times um, I know you're a busy guy and you got to get back to work. Um, we would at some point in time love to have you back. It was, uh, um, I know Mark knows this, but our listeners don't. It, we had to get special permission from Harley Davidson to, to have Michael um, be able to, to interview with us, which 
Um, it took a little longer than we anticipated, but uh, good things come to those who wait, and we appreciate that. I know he was very busy working on these projects, and um, we appreciate the 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 uh, two models, uh, three models three. Uh, that just came out. Uh, the 35th anniversary Fat Boy or 30th, 30th anniversary Fat Boy, the uh, CVO Rogue Glide, and uh, Eagle Eye. Yeah, Eagle Eye. Yeah, Eagle Eye really sticks out. That was a really that's a cool a cool Rogue Glide. So um, yeah, if you're looking to uh, to stand up from the crowd, um, the Eagle Eye is definitely going to be a, a one of those bikes that captures people's people's attention and and the limited volume that we're producing. Um, you know you're not going to see a lot of them that's for sure yeah. which we love by the way yes we think yeah. that's great we like the limited volume yeah people love exclusivity everyone wants what the next person can't have right that's, i believe yeah. that's true well michael i know you're a busy guy we're going to let you get back to work uh thank you for everything that you do for the motor company for dealers and for our customers and riders uh we truly appreciate that very very much and would love to have you back uh, in the future if possible um maybe sometime around uh, adventure touring release yeah, I would love it. I'd love to be able to talk to you guys more in more depth about those products. Obviously, we're we're a little constrained on that topic right now, but um, I appreciate the opportunity and, and can't thank you guys enough for what you guys do. I know you know you're out there as the the face of the brand, having conversations with customers on a daily basis and providing them with great experiences. And ultimately, we all have the same goal, I think, which is um, continuing the legacy of two wheels and letting other customers experience the benefits of, of being a motorcyclist, which is where my passion lies. Absolutely. Yes. Michael, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Bars podcast, sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Stay tuned for our next exciting podcast. Check out additional information on WilkinsHarley.com.